Well, I too want to um, uh, say Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers who are here. And on this morning, Mother's Day, I'm going to introduce you to my mother and to my grandmother. Though, of course, they're not here. They're, they're both gone to heaven. My mother had no father. He left the family when my mother was two years old, and she never saw him again, ever. He didn't divorce grandma. He simply left the family and married somebody else. He was a bigamist. He left my mother's mother with six children during the Great Depression, no less. He was a true deadbeat dad. My mother's mother, my grandmother, had to work for, for relief. She was a welfare recipient. She worked at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. She kept that job for, for many years, but she never received a paycheck until about in the late 1940s. She just got her welfare checks. My grandma was a single mom in the toughest sense of the word. Society back in the 1940s was not kind to single moms, nor was the church. As a child, I did not like going to my grandma's house. How many of you did not like going to your grandmother's house? There are a few of you. <laughs> now, you better be careful. <laughs> I saw that, Logan. Um, my, my dislike was not because of my grandma. She was a wonderful person, very nice. But I didn't like going to my grandma's house because of where she lived. She lived in the ghetto of Chicago. I was scared to go to my grandma's house. She lived in a second-story flat adjacent to an inner-city school, Salmon P. Chase Public School. It had boards over the windows, blacktop, no grass, fences instead of wide-open spaces, graffiti all over the walls of the, of the school. And I came from rural Wisconsin. Going to my grandma's house scared me to death. I thought I was going to get shot, which isn't that odd with Chicago. Life was tough for my grandma and my mother. Not only were they poor, they were on the dole. They were husbandless, and my mother was fatherless, and they were incredibly well acquainted with tragedy. My mother's sister, three months old, died. Her brother, Robert, when he was 15 years old, was riding his bicycle in Chicago, and he got struck and killed by a police officer who was speeding to chase another speeder. He died. My, old, my mother's older sister committed suicide. Her older brother suffered with mental illness, and her older sister died of cancer. My grandma outlived five of her six children. Only my mom was left. This morning, I'm going to weave the story of my mother and my grandmother with the biblical story of two other mothers. These mothers are by the name of Naomi and Ruth, because there are extraordinary parallels between their stories. I'm going to tell you today this, the tale of two mothers. And I think you'll be both surprised as well as delighted from what you see. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the early verses of the book of Ruth. It's a small book, only four chapters, but I'm going to divide it into four scenes. Scene number one is horrible. I called it Things Fall Apart, or you could call it a series of unfortunate events. Probably you won't pick up on all of them because maybe you can't read Hebrew, but there are probably at least 10 horrible things that happened. Try to pick them out. Some will be easy. Some will be difficult. Here it goes. 
Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there for about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Did you pick up the unfortunate events? You missed most of them. You missed almost all of them, to be honest with you. It begins with, in the days when the judges ruled. If you know anything about the Bible, that's the worst time in the history of the Bible. And the theme verse of this period of time is, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's called anarchy. There was no centralized government. There was no one in control. And so everybody did whatever they wanted. And it was a period of incredible suffering. So that's the time frame, the time when the judges ruled. There was famine in the land. You picked up that one. But it's worse. Because where do they come from? Bethlehem. Beth, house, lechem, of bread. They find they live in the house of bread and there is no bread. And so where do they go? They make a 70-mile trek from Bethlehem down into the lowest spot on the entire earth, the Valley of the Dead Sea, and up the other side because there in Moab, there are wheat fields. They're still there today. And there was bread. But you picked, did you pick this up? The Moabites are the sworn enemies of the Jews. But desperate times required desperate acts. And so they're so desperate to live that Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, they have to go to another country, a, a country of people who hate their guts, because that's the only way they can stay alive. And by the way, Elimelech means, my God is the king. And Naomi's name means pleasant. So this pleasant one who believes in God, they had to go to a, a foreign country. Well, when they got there, of course, they settled down and they probably found a place to live and they got some food. And now this little family of, of four found themselves in Moab. But you never picked this up because do you know what the word Malon means? Weakling. I call him Malox. And do you know what Kilian means? scrawny. So when these two little boys were born, and by the way, names are very significant in the Bible. This little boy was born and they didn't give them names. They didn't come up with their names before they were born. They looked at the little child and said, man, this child is weak. Let's call him weakling. And this little tiny thing, how did they make it? He's scrawny. So you got weakling and scrawny. Those are their two children. And they find themselves going into Moab. And then guess what happens? Not only are they in a country of people who despise the Jews, they're in a country that has a very different religion. The Moabite religion sacrifices children to their gods. It has all kinds of sexual rights that are part of their religion. And now they're thrust into the middle of this situation. And then what do their two sons do? Marry Moabite women. Now, my goodness, how does it get much worse than that? Well, it does. Because then what happens? Elimelech dies. 
And then weakling and scrawny die too. Why? Because they're weak and scrawny. They were not healthy little babies. And they grew up to be not very healthy adults. That's how the book starts. So let's highlight the 10. Number one, political upheaval. This is like the people in the Ukraine today. They didn't expect a year ago that this is what their lot in life would be, but everything has fallen apart in their nation. Their homes are gone. They're, the Ukraine is the breadbasket. It's like the Bethlehem of, 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 of that portion of, of, of Europe. It's gone. So you got political upheaval and you got economic deprivation, which is made worse by the fact that this famine is in the place where the bread is, is, is grown. That makes it even worse. Because as you know, as I said, Ukraine is the breadbasket of that portion of the world. And now they're not growing much bread there today because of other means. Then they're socially displaced. They become refugees in a foreign and an unfriendly country. It's like some of the refugees from Ukraine have had to flee to Belarus, which is friendly toward Russia, not toward Ukraine. But it's the only way they can stay alive. And then there's religious revulsion. As I mentioned, the Moabites, they were polytheistic. They, were animal, they, they sacrificed human beings. They uh, were, were very, very, their religion was incredibly horrible to the Jewish people. And then physical disability. Two sickly kids and early deaths. And then widowhood. Naomi becomes a widow. And so do the two Moabite women that they're married to. Their sons are married to. And in that society, they had few rights. They had no social security. There was little of any inheritance. And so widows were often lonely and helpless and despised, disadvantaged, and often taken advantage of. But it gets worse. For now, there was an intermarriage and in most cultures of the world, this very day, to marry somebody outside your religion was looked down upon. And then they were childless. Almost all statisticians will tell you one of the most difficult blows to one's faith is to lose a child. It does something terrible to us as human beings. Well, Naomi lost both of her children, and then she has no heirs. And in our society, that's tough. But to have no grandchildren, no hope of grandchildren is a terrible, terrible thing, especially in a culture that is the greatest horror in the world is to be left without somebody carrying on your family name. And there's no one to carry on her family name, which is a terrible thing. And then there's spiritual misery. We're going to find in chapter one, verse 13, that Naomi is going to say this, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. God hates me. That's a pretty bad, that's a pretty bad lot. You see, it is a given in life that life and motherhood, especially motherhood, is fraught with joys and sorrows. And you don't get to choose. You will have both. We don't get to choose the circumstances of our lives. And sometimes life can deal you a really hard hand to play. Naomi got a really hard hand. And our family background will affect us. It doesn't determine who we are, but it does affect us. We know that to be true. My mother didn't get to choose the family into which she was born any more than I did or any more than you do. Her family involved, background involved fatherlessness, bigamy, poverty, the Great Depression, personal depression, tragedy, 
That is the infant death of her sister, the accidental death of her brother, and the suicide of her sister. World War, living in an urban ghetto. That was the hand my mother was dealt. And it's not a very good hand. What do you do when you dealt a hand like that? Well, I'll tell you what most Americans do. We become bitter. We try to find somebody we can blame for our misfortune. Or we often become like the very people who hurt us. That's what we tend to do. Or we turn to despair or crime or addiction. That's what we don't typically do when we have a series of unfortunate events that we have been dealt. That's how we deal with life. Obviously, that's not a good way to deal with it. But that's how the book starts. That's scene number one. And it's very, very tragic. Thankfully, that's not the end of the book. For now, we're going to see that after these unfortunate events begin the odyssey of this book, we're going to see little tiny glimpses of God's grace. Just glimpses. Here's what the Bible says. This is verse chapter 1, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and sent out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So do you see the first glimpse? The first glimpse is after 10 years. Can you imagine a 10-year famine? It's dry here, but can you imagine 10 years of drought so that nothing grows? But then the word God had provided land, water to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And she had a home to which she could return. Little glimpses, not big, but little ones. Verse 8, then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown to the dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you to find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. So the next uh, glimpse of grace is that even though her husband died, even though both of her sons had died, God had provided her with two pretty remarkable women. And when she said, hey, go home to your mom, they said, no, we'd rather stay with you. And so what is Naomi going to do? She's going to plead with them. This is verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old and have enough to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has gone against me. I'm a bitter woman. I'm a bitter old bag. Why would you want to stay with a bitter woman? Go home. Leave me. Where's the grace in that? Verse 14, at this they wept aloud and Orpah kissed her mother goodbye. Orpah, by the way, that's where Oprah Winfrey gets her name. Her mother just switched two of the letters. So one of the daughters-in-law said, Oh, Ma, I love you, but I will stay here in Moab. But the next words, but Ruth clung to her. Little did she know, little did Naomi have any clue who this daughter-in-law 
was or would be. She had lost her husband and she had lost two sons, but she gained a remarkable daughter-in-law. And in fact, in chapter 4, verse 15, the people are going to say, this daughter who loves you is better than seven sons. But Ruth, what Naomi didn't realize is though she lost her husband and her two sons, this woman who was her daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. She's remarkable. But just a glimpse, that's just a little glimpse of God's grace. And now we have the verses that are unbelievable. Look at verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Stay among your people. Maybe you can find a husband. Stay among your gods. We don't worship the same God as you do. And now you have one of the most remarkable statements in the entire Bible of commitment and conversion. And it's often used, by the way, at weddings. But this is not a husband and wife speaking to each other. This is a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law. And what do we do? We make mother-in-law jokes. And by the way, if you read the Bible, most mother-in-laws come off really well. It's the fathers-in-law that are sometimes idiots. But the mothers-in-law are, are actually quite good. Listen to the incredible words of Ruth. Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Did you pick up that statement? That's her conversion. She says, I choose you. Who? A bitter old bag. Why would you choose somebody like this? This person's got a curse on her or something. Look at everything's gone rotten for this woman. But Ruth said, no. no. I chose you. And now I choose your God. Your God is my God. I've rejected the gods of Moab. I choose your God, the God of Israel. And where you go, I'm going. Where you stay, I'm staying. Where you die, I'm dying. I'm going with you. And Naomi said, okay. <laughs> you might be stupid, but you're doing it. How stupid? Well, we, the next verses tell us how stupid Ruth really is. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. That's about a 70-mile trip, probably three days. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred before them. And the women exclaimed, is this Naomi? By the way, no, Naomi's name means pleasant. That's her name. And they go, whoa, she doesn't look very pleasant to me. Look what they say. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. That means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Whoa. <laughs> Can you imagine? Ruth wants to hang out with her. But she did. This Ruth is something else. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. <gasps> Food. There's another glimpse of grace. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So 
she started to get little tiny glimpses of grace. I was thinking of my mother. My mother had a bad background, very bad. But when my mother told her story, as she told it, there were little glimpses of grace. My grandma was determined that her children should go to church. And the church that, they, they, that grandma chose for my mother to attend is called Moody Church. If you've ever heard of it, you should have. Do you know what, what Moody Church has? It's station. They said there's only one church in the history of human beings, only one that has remained a mega church for more than a hundred years. Every big church dies, every, with one exception. Guess what it is? Moody Church. It's the only one. But Moody Church was, I went online this week to find out it's 3.5 miles from my mother's house. And they had no money. They couldn't buy bus fare. And so they had to walk to church every, every Sunday morning. Grandma insisted. And do you know what my mom has? She had a 13-year perfect attendance pin. That's seven, that's seven miles of walking. And Chicago, as you know, doesn't have real wonderful winters. But my mom had 13 years. And guess who's the pastor? My mama's pastor, Harry Ironsides. Back then, the best-known, greatest pastor in America. And my mom is in that church every single week. Stunning. And grandma, though grandma was, was, was destitute, she filled my mom's home with two things, music and books. In fact, my grandma, when she got older, she, would, she was always reading. And one of the things I've never seen anyone else read this in my whole life, grandma subscribed to and read the congressional record. Can you imagine anything so boring? She would read that crazy thing all the time. And my mom's house was filled with music and books and radio. And they had this station in, in Chicago called WMBI, the Moody Bible Institute radio station. And my mom said that radio station had, by her words, a tremendous influence on my life. And then my mom grew up in a home with this woman who had been so jilted, my grandma, but she had a spirit of forgiveness. And eventually, God brought a man into my mother's life, a man called my father, who came from a very stable, loving home. And he passed that on to my mother. Are we even aware of the little graces of God in our lives? Do we see them? And when we do, do we thank God for them? You see, throughout my mom's life, even though her past was very, very bad, and grandma's was even worse, God sprinkled little tiny glimpses of grace, even in the toughest of times. But now everything is going to change because now God is going to put together this woman named Ruth, this Moabitess, a very poor woman from a foreign country with a very wealthy man by the name of Boaz. And when you see the interaction between these two, you see a picture of all I can call it is incredible love and respect. Through the years, I have done, I've performed many marriages, hundreds of them. And in almost all those cases, I spend some time before I marry couples going through um, premarital counseling with them. And one of the things we always do 
as we read the book of Ruth together. Because I want the people just to get a little tiny glimpse to see what, what is a good man and a good woman like? How do they interact with each other? Well, do you want to get a glimpse? I'm just going to read some verses and just listen as you see now the interaction between this man and this woman. Here we go. This is Ruth 2.2. 2. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, the first thing we know, notice, is that Ruth, Ruth had a formidable work ethic. It sounds simple. And Boaz had a prolific belief that what God said rich people should do, he would do. You see, God made provisions in the Old Testament for poor people. That's why he arranged the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee and the tithes. Some of those were given to the poor. But one of God's main methods of dealing with the poor in Israel was through what's called gleaning. If you were a person of means and you had orchards or vineyards or you had uh, fields, you were not allowed to all the produce that you produced. That is not yours. Part of that belongs to the poor. But you don't bag it up and take it to the poor. The poor have got to come and work. It's called workfare. And that's how it was arranged. So Boaz, being a wealthy man, he could have said, no, all of this is mine. Stay away. He didn't. He said, no. He followed God's plan. Poor people, you're welcome to come into my fields. Pick up anything that falls or any fruit that falls off the trees. It belongs to the poor. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. So here you have a man who is rich and understands God's commandments to those who have money. You have a responsibility to care for the poor. And then you have this really, really poor woman. But she's not lazy. She's not entitled. She goes and works. She said, oh, mom-in-law, I want to go to work so we can provide for us. So that's how it begins. And then here's Boaz, verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Hey, you bums, get to work. No. Here's what he says. Here's his greeting. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. (laughs) What kind of employer is he? He actually is kind to his workers. They seem to love him. Kind of a good guy. Verse 8. Now Boaz is going to meet Ruth. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Whoa, that's not the typical hotshot rich person. You know, wealthy people in our society try to take all kinds of uh, liberties with women. That's why we have the Me Too movement. They do all kinds of bad things. What does Boaz do? He says, oh, my daughter. He treats her, he, he greets her with great respect. He said, I want you to stay here. I want you to, to glean in my fields. I want you to get whatever water you need. And no man is going to touch you because I'm going to protect you. Remember, she's a foreigner. She's poor. And this is the way he, he, 
he, he, he starts with, um, with, with just kind words to her. He's not interested in her yet, you know, because she's, she's not even Jewish. Well, she is Jewish now because she's converted. But then listen to the words he's about to say to her. There's some, it's one of the most heartwarming tributes, one of the most succinct prayers, and one of the most meaningful metaphors you'll find in the whole Bible. Here it is. Here's what Boaz says to Ruth. Verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's going to say to you, I've heard about you. I've heard about what you did. I heard about how you left your home country, how you followed your bitter old bag mother-in-law, and you've come here. And he says, may God reward you from this because you have chosen to place your life under the wings of the God of Israel. And you know that metaphor. That's the metaphor for a fire that sweeps through an area and there's a mother hen and the mother hen gathers all of her little chicks under her wings and she takes the fire and dies so her chicks can live. It says, you've done this. You have put your life under the wings of the God of Israel. That's what you've done. May God reward you for what you've done. Who is this dude? <laughs> Man. And how does she respond? Here's verse 13. Oh, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she says. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. Do you see how these, where do you get these two good people? This is in the time of anarchy, political anarchy. And here you find these two incredibly godly individuals. And so she goes home. And she doesn't go home with her bag half full. She goes home with all of this food. It was like two weeks worth. And what does her mother-in-law do? Said, well, here's verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Oh, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked, for worked with today is Boaz, she said. Boaz? That's coming next. But just look, did you, have you seen anything that these two people have done that's out of the ordinary? Have you seen anything from Boaz, anything from Ruth that's spectacular? No, it's absolutely ordinary. What do they do? They're God-fearing. They're Bible-obeying. They selflessly sacrifice. They work hard. They're humble. They're committed. They have a genuine faith in God, and they treat other people with love and respect. Spectacular, isn't it? No. Any human being who doesn't live with some of that is an idiot. We're absolutely, that's the way we're supposed to live our lives. With love and respect for one another, with hard work, with selfless sacrifice, being God-fearing, that's how we're supposed to work. None of that is hard, but they do it in spades. Just ordinary goodness, ordinary god godliness that you really should expect of any human being, really. That's all they do. And so Naomi, Ruth comes home and says, hey, mom, I, I, mom-in-law, I, I, I worked in the field by some guy named Bozo <laughs> or Boaz. And how does she respond? Verse 20. <gasps> The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, God has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. That man 
is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Ruth didn't know that. Here she just happened to go out working, and she just happened to go to a field that just happened to be one that was owned by one of Naomi's relatives. Not close, but more a little bit distant. Now, the concept of leveret marriage or of a kinsman redeemer is this. The worst thing that could ever happen to you in life is to not have progeny to pass on your name. But now since Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons, there's no one to carry on her name. So what the law stated was that the bride, that is in this case, um, um, Ruth, is to be betrothed to be married to the closest relative. And then that relative, when they got married, hopefully would have children, but the children then would not be Ruth's children. They're Naomi's children to carry on the family name of Elimelech. That's what the law of the Old Testament stated. Some of us have said, I'm glad we don't have to do that today. But we don't live in Old Testament times. And so in chapter 3, and I'm not going to go through it, but it's so beautiful. In chapter 3, we have Ruth proposing to Boaz. The woman's proposes to the man. She didn't get down on one knee. She went at his feet. <laughs> Read it. It's kind of interesting. Because Naomi, who knew the culture, the Jewish culture, she said, that's our, that's our relative. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one, according to the law of God, who is to marry my daughter now, who has become a Jew, Ruth. And she says, Ruth, this is what you do. Clean yourself up. Put on your best clothes. After the, the harvest day is over and he's had his food and drink, he's going to take a nap. And when he takes a nap that night, you go and you lay at his feet. He'll know what to do. Whoa, that's a little bit forward. She does it. And he, when he wakes up from his slumber, he says, who's at my feet? She says, it's me. It's Ruth. And what does he say to her? He says, oh, what a wonderful woman you are. I'll take care of this matter today. He knew what was going on, and she did as well. So what happens in chapter 3 is when the day he sends her home, Ruth home with some food, and Naomi says he'll know what to do. So he goes to the city gate. That's where they conducted their business. That's where legal transaction, transactions were taking place. And this is chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Well, I skipped something, as you know. When they got to the gate, um, Boaz said, I would like to marry, to take as my bride, this woman, Ruth, but I am not the closest relative. And so the closest relative is called forward. And he says, I'll take her. And they says, remember, if you take her, you take all the other things that are associated with that. She becomes part of your family and part of your inheritance. He says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've reserved my family for my kids and my wife. Um, I decline. Boaz says, I'm next in line. I'll take her. And what they did to seal a covenant back then is they took off a sandal and they gave the sandal and said, I now this day make it known that this woman Ruth is, and I'm going to 